Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. They were an elite force. They were like an SAS of uh, terrorism. If they went to murder Hugh Jordan and he wasn't there, then if his brother was there, then he would do. Or if he if he's not there, the next door neighbour would do because it all had the same effect. It was terror. They were purveyors of terror and they were good at it. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. They remain Ireland's most notorious loyalist terrorists, but mad dog Johnny Adair and his right-hand man Sam Skelly McCrory had been enjoying a retirement of sorts in Scotland. Friends since childhood, they had together embraced anarchy, fascism and later formed the murderous UDA Sea Company, which terrorised Northern Ireland for years. But this week, the tight-knit duo were finally separated forever when McCrory died in a tragic accident after battling alcoholism for years, leaving behind Adair to forge his future alone. Today, I'm talking with Sunday World journalist Hugh Jordan, author of Mad Dog, The Rise and Fall of Johnny Adair and Sea Company who became an unlikely confidant of the pair in recent years. He tells me about the fear they brought to the streets of Belfast, about their blood-brother bond which survived through the decades, and about the death of McCrory on a lonely stone stairway. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So you've had a quite an unusual relationship with Sam Skelly McCrory and Johnny Adair and, you know, something has transformed and peace has settled in between you all. But, um, yeah, tell us who he is, McCrory, and what's happened to him. Sam McCrory was one of the most prolific killers of the notorious C Company from the Shankill Road, and they were the elite killers of Johnny Adair's uh, UFF gang, uh, responsible for dozens of murders uh, in the early 90s. Uh, 
Skelly was caught and taken off the streets uh, by use of an MI5 agent, which we'll come to later on. Uh, and, and Johnny Adair was taken off the streets when the uh, Deputy Chief Constable at the time, Ronnie Flanagan, who was in charge of the RUC Special Branch, uh, put a special team together to take Adair out. And uh, they were successful. And he was charged with uh, directing terrorism. Both of them were sentenced to 16 years for terrorist offences. How do you end up becoming friendly with people like this? Okay, there's a lot of story in between that, but I mean, um, he sounds like, to me, that's pretty scary kind of an individual. Yes, yes, they are. But um, I went out my way, Nicola, to try and understand the, the, the what was the driving force of sectarianism. And uh, because it, it pervades the northern society and uh, it's a cancer. And uh, they were the physical expression of extreme Protestantism in the north. I actually wrote a book about Adair uh, nearly 20 years ago called uh, Mad Dog, The Life and uh, Decline of Johnny Adair Sea Company. And... Uh, but he didn't cooperate with the book, so I didn't. I couldn't say I knew him. But as the years passed and they had been exiled to Scotland, I decided that it was worthwhile talking to him. And it was Skelly that I approached first, and he was open to me coming over. So I went over to see him, spent hours with him, discussed many things in depth, and I found him to be an honest, open, and thoroughly engaging human being. And uh, he's also an openly gay man, which is uh, quite unusual. You wouldn't think that would fit the normal profile of a, of a, of a terrorist killer. But um, I knew plenty about Skelly. What's his nickname? Sam Skelly McCrory. He came from Summer Street in the Old Park area above the Shankill Road from a, a, a really respectable family. He was well-spoken. He was better spoken than many of his uh, associates. But as children, they all went to this school, which is no longer there now, up near Ardoyne on the, off the Crumlin Road, called Summerdale. And it really was, <laughs> it became a school for terrorism because in the same class was John Adair, and, uh, and and various others. So they knew each other intimately from their youngest years. And uh, they, they, they were attracted, first of all, to the National Front uh, racist movement. And there, uh, 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 at the same time as that, there were various punk bands on the go uh, who, who were the musical expression of this stuff people called Screwdriver. And, and so Adair and Skelly, uh, they wanted in on the act. And with, with very little musical uh, skill or ability, uh, they formed a band, and Skelly was the front man, complete with his tattoos on his face. He had a spider's web tattooed in his face. And Mr Adair was um, the bass player in the band. Uh, by their own admission, they were dreadful. Um, but they 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 they've, they've called themselves uh, offensive weapon 
which was the ideal ideal name for them. And they did perform some uh, gigs. Uh, so they were attracted and they, they would turn up at National Front demonstrations and they would go to England to support things. And they were, they were troublemakers. They were on the streets. They would be fighting in the grounds of Belfast City Hall with their Catholic counterparts. There would be arranged fights and, uh, and lengthy fights uh, causing problems for shoppers and the police alike trying to deal with it whilst this terrorist campaign was on the go. And, uh, but, so they, they, and back in their ha- Shankill Road heartland, they would get themselves into trouble with the, the police and the loyalist paramilitaries. So the technique of loyalist paramilitaries was be to threaten them with uh, retribution and eventually as a means of trying to stop them what they were doing that was causing annoyance to local people, they would get them to join the organisation. So it was a question of join up or you're going to be beaten up. And uh, so Johnny and Skelly and all the others and their gang uh, joined up and became fully-fledged UDA men. So they sort of essentially started as anarchists, really, more than anything. And, um, you know, they were following that racist movement, but they were obviously plucked because they were of use. They were of use. They were of use, but they were bitterly disappointed uh, because the UDA in their part of Belfast did very little. The leadership was uh, had been infiltrated by the police special branch and everything was contained. So they started to, to, to be annoyed about this. They would be trying to get uh, military operations underway and they were all turned down. And they saw that the leadership under a, a man called uh, Tommy Tucker Little uh, was in tow with the special branch. They were very disappointed at that. But then along comes a, a thing out the blue and Skelly said, uh, this man should have been given a medal. And that was Sir John Stevens, who was an English uh, chief, uh, chief constable who was brought into Northern Ireland to carry out no fewer than three separate investigations into collusion between the police and loyalist terrorists. And uh, uh, so he began to unravel this complex relationship and a number of uh, strange things happened. Their office uh, in near Carrickfergus in a police building was burned down, and that sent signals to Sir John Stevens. Anyway, the conclusion was he, he, he charged, arrested and charged a number of leading loyalist paramilitaries. So there's a gap, there's a vacancy in the market. For, for the top jobs. No one wanted them because you either go to jail or you end up dead. And uh, Johnny Adair slotted right into the number one position of uh, mm-hmm. leader of C Company in the Lower Shankill, his right-hand man, Sam Skelly McCrory. And mm. Adair did possess an ability when he was charged, eventually charged, with directing terrorism, and they had tried out the charge 
on an earlier person who really shouldn't have been charged with it, uh, but they got a conviction. So the this, the authorities that it was aimed, it was tailor made for a day. No one's ever been charged with that uh, offence since. But it was the right charge, director of terrorism. That is what he was. And just going back to that C company and to remind us exactly, you know, what kind of terrorism and how frightening they were. Like, you know, you've had quite a few baddies up there in the north over the, the years of the Troubles. But Adair really stands out. He's not called Mad Dog for nothing. I mean, they were they had an insatiable appetite for violence. Um was there much politics with that, do you think, or was it more, was violence the more prevailing force? Well, I have discussed that with him, and the way he, he told me that he saw it was that the IRA were doing everything and they were neutralised from replying. So they were far from happy, but by the time the gap in the market appeared, they were ready to go, and he had this strange relationship close relationship of of all the members in that area knew each other intimately. It was extremely hard for the police to, to crack the wall that kept them together as a unit. Adair was five feet three tall, but he had an ability, it was described to me once, as like a, a basketball coach. And he would gather them round them, give them assignments, and 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 build them up when they needed to and 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 let them go when they, they needed to but he had an ability to get action out of them he also moved around other areas he would um he 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 would he did an unusual thing he brought in people who were out and out criminals uh but he brought them into his organization because he had the belief that one or two of them may end up as gunmen, and they did. So he could he could spot that ability in a human being that they could change from just being a low life criminal to being a killer. And uh, so, did they target civilians? Did they target buildings? You know, what sort of crimes were they suspected of being behind? Well, this was the way it was explained to me. It was intelligence work was done on targets. But uh, when, a, when a UFF man from C Company would go, go out on what they called a job, uh, i.e. a murder mission, uh, and if the target wasn't there, then the orders were to come back with something. So if they went to murder Hugh Jordan for interest and he wasn't there, and if his brother was there, then he would do. Or if he if he's not there, the next door neighbour would do because it all had the same effect. It was terror. They were purveyors of terror and they were good at it. And how many kind of, say, murders, for example, was it ever estimated? Because obviously, you know, many of these cases aren't solved, but they will be suspected of at the C company's involvement. But... Was there any sort of estimate of how many murders maybe they carried out? Uh, for, for that unit, but uh, uh, Skelly would be centrally involved here. There may be three dozen over a short period of time. And it panicked the police. It panicked the police, uh, particularly Sir Ronnie Flanagan, who was under pressure from the Catholic community to do something. And he brought together 
a team of tough detectives who worked on uh, several strategies to 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 wind a dead end, and uh, they were eventually successful. Uh, it, it, and were they funded, Hugh, or you know how did they purchase weapons? Well, it coincided with the rise of drugs, and uh, they they were all drug takers, uh, drug sellers. And the the money was quite phenomenal. One of their top killers, apart from uh, Sam McCrory, was uh, a fellow called Stephen Top Gun McCaig. And uh, Stephen Top Gun McCaig, uh, at one stage, was on a salary of maybe £3,000 a week. Now, that it could only be drugs that, that funded that type of... Salary, but um, they they were, you know, if you're looking at hard nosed, then they were an elite force. They were like a, an SAS of uh, terrorism. And did they have support within their communities that they had come out of? Were they, you know, seen as heroes, or were they kind of did they create fear within their community as well as outside it? They certainly created fear, undoubtedly. They had support, undoubtedly, uh, quite massive support. And it mm. put pressure on other areas. The, the UDA at that time was uh, divided up into five uh, what they called brigade areas, but they were essentially fiefdoms under the control of the, the so-called brigadier. Um, and, and, and Johnny was in West Belfast. Uh, but he was the the most active of the lot. He would mm. he would scoff other areas and other paramilitary leaders. Uh, East Belfast, particularly, he used to refer to it as Silent Valley because nothing much happened there. And he was he was critical of other UDA leaders who were involved in sort of early on peace talks. He he, he said it wasn't the time for peace. It was time to give the IRA back what they they, they were given out, and uh, he, he frightened the life out of the IRA uh, in a strange way because they took it to their doors, they took it to IRA members' doors, and IRA people were forced to live behind steel shutters, and it wasn't a way for anyone to live, but it was unusual. They weren't used to the enemy coming to their door. But Adair's team did that. And around this time, I mean, I'm going to presume the Sunday World were first to name him or how was he first named or did that nickname Mad Dog come in before he he was identified as who he was? Well, th- well, that's that's quite interesting you, you, you say that. Um, there, if you remember, there was a... a INLA terrorist called Dominic McGlinchey, Dominic Mad Dog McGlinchey from Balachi in County Derry. Well, he was Mad Dog. And um, the, a, a female reporter for one of the big English papers called Maggie O'Neill came here and she wanted to meet uh, Mr Adair and... Uh, the, the a meeting was arranged, and uh, she she met him in a house on the Shankle. But she, the deal was that she wouldn't name him, 
So she needed a name for him. And she put the name Mad Dog on him, although McGlinchey had it, first of all. She called him Mad Dog Adair. And uh, I think Johnny at that time quite liked it. I don't think he likes it so much now, and he doesn't mm-hmm. get it so much. But it was Maggie O'Neill who was the first person to call him Mad Dog without naming him. So mm-hmm. I'm not just sure when the public put two and two together who he, who he, who he was. But he certainly came into um, media at some point and he was very much a prominent figure on the front page of our own newspaper and others. And, you know, he built up this reputation that was, he was feared across the UK as well. And, um, you know, he became this kind of individual that we all spoke about. Um, presumably, you know, you're at the forefront of this kind of reporting. What, what's he like? Does he ever communicate with you back then? Or is this, is there an aggre- aggression? He didn't do much uh, communication with the press then. And things were very tense. I remember going to, to see him uh, when the Drum Creek crisis was at, at its height. And I said to him, uh, quite straightforwardly, I said, I've been told that you have said you're going to kill a Catholic a day until this is resolved. And he denied that. Uh, But that was the type of thing that was swelling around. It was a ruthless, ruthless uh, terrorism that no one had seen before. He had admiration for people like Billy Wright, you know. He he loved uh, military strategy within loyalism. Uh, He loved discipline and, and he loved it when the so-called volunteers wore uniforms to carry out their terrorism. And like, what was your first impression of him? And maybe you met McCrory with, at the same time as his number two. Like, what, what did you think of them? And was it fraught? Initially, I saw Johnny Adair as just a, a, a criminal and a violent criminal. Uh, and it was only much later when he was away in Scotland and I'm, I was working or, or contributing to the BBC History of the Troubles, and I had arranged an interview for my colleague Mandy McCauley with uh, Johnny Adair and Skelly. And when Mandy was interviewing Sam Skelly McCrory, uh, Johnny and I went for a walk along the seafront in, in air overlooking the, the, the Firth of Clyde, and... Uh, I discussed the strategy of his terror reign, but he, I I really, I was wrong. It was a thought out strategy. He knew exactly what he was doing and he knew how to organize uh, a tight terrorist ship. And it was very, very difficult for the police to crack it. I mean, if I'm being really honest, Ronnie Flanagan brought together a team of detectives who were excellent at their job, but they bordered on rule-breaking to be able to do that. And, mm-hmm. the, and the, 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 court, uh, the courts seemed to accept that. Just to go back to that slightly, I suppose, before we move forward to your relationship with him and the late McCrory, um, what year did that happen? What sort of era were they going into prison and did they spend the full 16 years there? Yes, well, that, it was all um, all uh, in the nineties. It was all in the nineties. The, the ceasefire came in in, in ninety four, 
and then where they were they were jailed. Uh, I think Skelly went to jail in '92. Uh, a day after that, so they seemed to be off the road. And uh, Adair got, then uh, under the Good Friday Agreement, he got out. Skelly uh, served a, a, a lot of time behind bars. So they were released kind of uh, towards 2010 then? Yes. And headed straight to Scotland? No, no, it wasn't just as simple as that. Adair was out and then the the Secretary of State put him back in for, for breaking uh, the terms of his release. So he was back in for a while and that was the period that I decided to write the book because he wasn't going to uh, be on, the, nothing much was going to change in that period, where when Johnny Adair was on the streets, things changed every week, you know. It was, yeah. like, it was like herding cats in a lot of ways. And did he come out, and, and, and McCrory as well, did they come out to try and reignite their violence, or were they different people when they came out? It was obviously a completely different political times. In the year 2000, uh, the, August, I think it was, there were, Adair organised a festival of uh, loyalism on the Shankill Road, and uh, it was a huge day with a, with a march down the shankle of men wearing masks and dark glasses and uniforms. Uh, all, all UDA men, UFF. But at, tailed on at the back, there was one man carrying an LVF flag. The LVF were a breakaway from the, the UVF. And this was seen as they passed the Rex Bar in the middle of the Shankill Road. This was seen as a deliberate insult on the part of Adair, who was organising it, to insult the UVF. Um, some people attacked the marcher and there was a, 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 a small riot on the Shankill. But uh, within that day, Adair had a large... Uh, play area set aside set aside for the festival. They had a huge bonfire ready to go up and uh, there was a lot of tension then and uh, the, there was an, an incident where Adair was spotted in the middle of this waste ground with a team of men around him. And why we know this in detail is uh, Divis Tower uh, overlooked this area, uh, a high flat complex, but at the top of it, the British Army had a watch watchtower and they were filming the whole thing. So Adair was spotted in the middle of uh, of a group of men and it was described to me, he was like a basketball coach. He was in the middle giving them instructions. A car appears and uh, an AK-47 gun is thrown into the back and and it's driven off. And a few minutes later, you hear the sound, the burst of the unmistakable sound of an AK-47. And that was Sam McCrory firing it uh, brutally at the Rex bar. All the windows were smashed. And uh, so that, but that was Adair's signal. They were top dog. They had replied. But then two people were shot dead. And... Uh, and things got out of hand, and that led to other reprisal murders. And uh, it was now after that, 
the UDA decided to move against Adair. They had brought them into disrepute. Uh, Protestant people were dying on the shankle and uh, they, they moved against them. But it has to be said that some of those that moved against them had a, had a kind of financial interest. They were quite happy uh, for Adair to be taken out the way to let them get on with making money. So uh, Adair, uh, Adair was back in jail, but his supporters were, were, were moved out and they, they went initially to Bolton in England, it's called Horwich, and uh, Skelly uh, had moved eventually to Scotland. As I say, Sam Skelly was a, a gay man and uh, he had a partner and, uh, who was Scottish and he moved to Scotland. So eventually, uh, a bit unsettled, Johnny Adair moved north to be near his uh, lifelong friend. Friend, his childhood friend. So in other words, they were kind of ran out of Northern Ireland by their own. Well, very much so, yeah. It was, uh, I would say, Johnny Adair and Skelly, uh, because one of the killings that happened was a man called John Grug Gregg. Now... Uh, he his claim to fame. He was a brigadier for South East Antrim, which is in the news at the minute. Uh, but his claim to fame was as a young man. He was in the team that shot Jerry Adams in the centre of town. Uh, so he was a bit. He had hero status, and in the middle of all this feud, he had been over in Glasgow to watch Celtic and Rangers, and he drove off the boat. Him and a friend, and both of them were shot dead in automatic machine gun fire. Now that was a sin uh, the UDA could not allow Johnny Adair or Skelly to get away with. So they, they really had to get offside. And and bed down within Scotland. And of course, Celtic and Rangers are at the heart of a lot of this as well. Um, so they're what, 10 years pretty much in around a last decade living in, in Scotland? Well, it's really 20 years. It's nearly mm. it's another few weeks. It'll be 20 years that, uh, that they've both been away, you know. Mm. So and what have they been asked? Like, what has life been like for them out there? Well, I wouldn't say they're wealthy in any way. Uh, you know, there's certainly no income from drugs or, or anything like that. Uh, uh, it's, it's difficult to, to tie them down. Uh, I, I remember asking Sam and he, he told me that uh, they, they occasionally get work uh, as a kind of security capacity. If a company has a, an outstanding debt then uh, and it's not been paid, they tend to, the company's passed it to Skelly and uh, if he appeared at your door, you would be inclined to pay your bill. I can only imagine. Now, your relationship with them probably started when you were the fixer, essentially, for the BBC interview, but it continued and it kind of got better than it maybe had been in the past. I was still keen to understand what the driving force of this terrorism was that was prepared to kill for a piece of land. And I, I remember one day, Nicola, coming out of the home of one of them, a guy called uh, uh, Winky Dodds was his name. And I came out of his house. Adair was still in jail. I'd been interviewing him about something. And I looked 
to my left and the sun was shining. It was early evening and I could see the twin spires of St. Peter's Catholic Church on the falls. And to me, it seemed close enough for a good Gaelic player to be able to kick a long ball and, and hit the church. So that, so these people lived cheek by jowl. You had uh, Adair and his team on the shankle, and a short distance away across the peace line was the Catholic Falls Road. So it was a remark. I wanted to see what the the dynamic for that was. And I learned a lot about Adair. Adair came from a, a very nice family, as did as did um, Skelly. Skelly had an uncle who played in the 1958 World Cup finals and scored a goal for Northern Ireland. Uh, you know, his, his sisters were civil servants and people like that. Johnny Adair's father uh, was a... Interested in pigeons, and that's a whole confraternity in Belfast. And and the young John Adair had his father's interests, and they would go and visit their Catholic friends and talk about pigeons. So they they weren't blind, uh, bigoted people. Skelly was interested in football because he was a good footballer. Uh, of course, the 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 gay side of him hadn't emerged, but he could play football. He understood it. He was a Rangers fan. Uh, Johnny Adair won't mind me saying he was a Johnny-come-lately Rangers fan. And uh, Skelly told me, you know, he wouldn't know the difference between Neil Lennon and um, and and one of the Rangers players. You know, he he just didn't know them. But, uh, but he, he insists now that he's... He's up to speed on that. Uh, so that was the type of people that they were. They were, they were ordinary yet extraordinary human beings. So in other words, to try and understand why this bitter, murderous divide had happened in such a small little place in Belfast and, you know, what went on to be the Troubles and I think more than 3,000 people were killed in it all, you had to get up close and personal with them really to try and find out what it was that motivated them where it had all come from. And like, did you get an understanding of that? Oh, yes, it was It was returning the serve, uh, as, as David Irvine famously said, uh, to the provisional IRA. Without mm-hmm. doubt, that is what it was. It was, we uh, are not going to accept your steamrolling us into a united Ireland. And, uh, and it has to be said, they were successful because... Mm. The, the the IRA left the stage. That would say, though, that it was very, very politically motivated and yet their actions seem as if they were always, sort of vi- violence was always primary to them. Yes, but, it, it, well, it was, uh, it has to be said, it's a bit of both, wasn't it? It was mm. uh, p- political at one level and, yes. uh, and, and on the streets it was brutally violent as well. So it, it was. So a violent person's reaction to that political, what, what was going on. So coming up to this weekend and your, your kind of, whatever we'll call it, your, your professional relationship with them, keeping in touch, talking to them, et cetera, has gone on um, over the past few years. But what happened this weekend? Because it was quite a, a shocking piece of news when it broke. Sam McCrory had a drink problem. And he, most of the time he handled it quite well, but he would go through periods 
common if anybody understands alcoholism. It would go through periods of dry uh, and, and no drink taken at all. And he would look after himself. You could hear a difference in his voice. He looked better. He sounded better. He had been very fit at one time. And his, his fitness started coming back. Now, around six weeks ago, he fell from a bus and uh, the, the two nurses got him up into his flat and settled him down. And after that, he started doing well. I could see he had a big change in his voice. He was telling me he was just about to be going back to the gym. But one day last week, he went to Glasgow for the day and he rang Johnny Adair on his way home and he had taken a drink. But uh, he said, I'm on my way home, I'm fine. He had seven pints of beer, uh, but he felt fine and that was going to be it for a while. So he gets home and he that was him until yesterday, Sunday. And uh, he spoke to John Adair and did his uh, did what he, he needed for him in the computer. And uh, neighbours say that he left his flat around three o'clock yesterday afternoon uh, and went to the, the pub and he came back around five and he was incapable. And uh, uh, making his way up, the, he lived in the top flat of uh, uh, a block and mm-hmm. uh, of, of probably six storeys and uh, going up the stairs he fell and uh, came back and, and bashed his head on the concrete step mm. and, uh, and it, it, got, it killed him. And obviously rumours initially that he had been shot dead, that he may have been attacked, etc, etc, just given his background and the nature of the man he was, but it simply seems to have been an unfortunate accident. Yes, within, within Loyalist circles in Belfast, the rumour mill started quickly. Uh, first of all, that he had been shot, and there was another rumour that he had been struck by hammers. And certainly when I spoke to Johnny Adair, he didn't know at that stage, and he was distraught trying to find out information. Uh, the only thing I can think why he wasn't told anything was he Skelly was probably holding on to life at that point. Uh, but eventually the police told him that he had passed away. And like for, for two people that had shared so much, albeit violence and terrorism, etc., they were childhood friends and they had sort of their lives that they'd never gone too far from each other and obviously living over the past 20 years in the same community in Scotland. Like what will his death mean for Johnny Adair? Well, it's a gap in his life. Uh, these lads trusted each other implicitly. They, mm. they, they shared every thought they ever had. Uh, and it was quite a remarkable, but a very, very trusting relationship. Uh, Johnny Adair knew everything about Sam McCrory. And, and Sam knew everything about, about his friend Johnny. They were... They were almost twins, you know. And together were they still feared, you know, to the extent that that would have offered them protection and will it weaken Adair that Skelly's gone? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's more, more vulnerable now, but he's, he's a sensible man. He, he looks after himself. I mean, what I found intriguing about the two of them as, as Northern Ireland settled down 
where it's a much better place than it was when they were around. And each year is slightly better than the year before, despite the ongoing difficulties. They were supportive of the change. They And we still have loyalist paramilitary groups. The two of them would be strong advocates of these groups disappearing. They were relentlessly critical of the paramilitary leaders of today. Uh, And the two of them had a phrase that they often used. They would describe an individual and then finish off the description by saying, there's not a loyalist bone in his body. That's what they often (laughs) said about some of the, the... UDA and UVF leaders today. So they believed that they had a place in history and that they had a reason to be, but that times have changed and there's no longer. So they're, do you think seriously that they would, and, you know, Adair is still with us, no longer be men of violence? I don't think they're involved in violence in any way or have been for a long, long time. Uh, I think they, I mean, John Adair has told me that you know, it took him a long time to change his outlook on life, but he's settled to it and he likes normality. He likes normality. And uh, he, he goes to see rangers. He enjoys his life uh, he's, he's, as a young boy. He has to look after. And uh, that's how he, 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 he occupies himself. And can you speculate about how... Sam Skelly McCrory will be laid to rest. Will there be echoes of the past at his funeral? I don't think so. Uh, I thought about it today, Nicola, what will happen, because nothing has been announced yet, and because it was a sudden death, there will be a, an inquest. Um, I th- One of uh, my colleagues had suggested to me that he would be coming back here, but I doubt it very much. Uh, Sam has family who obviously will be going to his funeral it's easier if it's in scotland uh the police can handle it easier uh, we don't have uh, then the egos that we would have over here of people passing comment. i mean they're passing comment already uh, we expect that especially in these days of social media etc but um it's it, it, i would think the family and ultimately they will take the decision uh, I think they'll they'll have his funeral in Scotland. I think it will be a fairly low-key affair, affair and there won't be reference to the, the, the past in any big way. Well, Hugh Jordan, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on.
Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.